This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This is Larry Lessig. This is another episode of Another Way. And this time, we're going to talk to a neuroscientist. Now, you might wonder, what does a neuroscientist have to do with the problems we've been discussing? And today, we're going to talk about the challenge of passing HR1. And the answer is, neuroscience doesn't have much to do with it. But it turns out that one of the leading figures in the reform movement for politics um, is a neuroscientist at Princeton, a professor of neuroscience at Princeton. But he is also uh, the leader of something called the Princeton Election Consortium, which has a gerrymandering project in it and has been focused um, uh, on the challenge of bringing empirical analysis to the problems of elections. And so he's been running the Princeton Election Consortium since the early 2000s. I think it's 2004. And they've been studying and advising states about gerrymandering and other election-related issues. And he has been instrumental in crafting solutions to the problems of representative districts and making those districts more representative rather than simply partisan. In 2021, he committed the Princeton Election Consortium to the project of building democracy back better, not fearing the trademark action that Biden might bring it back, bring against him, but um, maybe that's because he's trying to support the project of the president to build back better. So he wants to build democracy back better. And today we're going to talk to him about two problems that we've talked about many times, gerrymandering and the Electoral College. Stay tuned. So Sam, thank you so much for talking with us. So we've been following the progress of democracy reform on this podcast. You've been at the center of democracy reform for more than 16 years, I take it, um, given the history of the work of um, of your center at, at Princeton. But let's start with gerrymandering, which has been a focus of uh, your work for many years. Why should we worry about gerrymandering? Why is this an issue that should be at the top? Because it's your view. It should be at the top of anybody's concern about how to make a system fair. You know, in our peculiar system of, um, of representation, we have these single-member districts where by tradition and by law, uh, at several levels of government, we have individuals who represent us in these uh, specific territories, congressional districts, legislative districts, uh, even things like school districts. And because we have this peculiar system of representation, I mean, maybe not that peculiar, uh, it has the additional feature that the lines are drawn by legislators in most cases. And so that means that legislators can, uh, can have say over who their constituents are. The reason we should care about this is that that quirk of legislators controlling their own line drawing introduces a weird bug in the system where they have more power over who's in the legislature or in Congress than we do as voters. Just to give you a sense of it, we worry a lot about um, having an accurate census count, which is, of course, essential in drawing districts and allocating how many members of Congress each state gets and so on. So, you know, an accurate Congress is uh, accurate census is very important. But in fact, line drawing can have consequences for representation that are much larger 
Uh, it's possible, for instance, for a congressional delegation, say in Pennsylvania, to be anywhere from 13-5 in one direction to uh, something like 10 or 11 to uh, say 11 to 7 in the other direction. And that is something like a third of the delegation that's just at the mercy of whoever draws the line. So that's representation. Then there's an even more fundamental principle, which is of responsiveness, which is to say that um, we expect our our representatives to be responsive to our needs, to our anger, to our requests, to the risk of being turfed out of office. And that responsiveness of individual legislators to voters is basically destroyed by gerrymandering, where no matter what party you belong to, if you uh, are drawn into a safe district, then you are insulated from voters, and that's irrespective of party. Uh, and so for these two reasons, representation and responsiveness, uh, re- gerrymandering uh, is the soft underbelly of all our democracy. So let's, let's focus on the second one for a second. Um, so the argument is safe seats destroy responsiveness because why does a congressperson care? Either care about the Republican or the Democrat, doesn't matter. Um, uh, in a safe seat. What what percentage do you consider safe seats right now? Well, these days, um, for the last 20 years, we've had um, unprecedented levels of polarization where the issue stands of the two parties are quite far from one another. And that means that voters are um, pretty reliable in their habits. Even if they say they're independent, voters um, are, you know, pretty reliable Democratic voters or Republican voters, even if they're not registered that way. And I would say that any district that is, um, let's say, whose margin between, let's say, Biden and Trump um, in the presidential election is uh, eight points or closer, I would call um, a competitive seat. And if it's more than eight points, I mean, that's not very much, right? What I'm saying is that if a a district is 54-46, it's borderline not competitive. And a 55-45 district is not competitive because of how polarized we are these days. So because we're polarized, that means we're not going to respond or be open to responding to the other side. So that means we're just locked in regardless of exactly the strength of our own candidates. Yeah, there's lock-in at several levels. There's individual voter lock-in. And the reason is likely that there's just not that much reason to vote with the other side. Because for some reason, now more than perhaps ever, our attitudes about race, our attitudes about... um, Social programs, our attitudes about guns and abortion, uh, and even now, actually, oddly, vaccination. Um, All these different views are correlated with one another so that there's less and less common ground with the opposing party, less and less reason to compromise. And as a result, it's just easy to tell which party you like better. And that polarization leaves very little room for hopping over the fence. Yeah, so the identity, you become, this is almost an identity issue and, and who can vote against one's own identity. But then but then imagine, let's take a, a completely safe seat Democratic district, or we could say the same on the other side, but let's start with Democratic. And you're a congressperson in the safe seat Democratic district. Are you afraid of no one? The one you're afraid of is you're afraid of a, a primary challenger. You are afraid of being taken down by members of your own party. So for instance, um, when Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez came up, she was an unknown challenger, and much to many people's surprise, she was able to take uh, down a veteran, many-year congressman, uh, and so he was quite surprised by being defeated by this upstart. 
likewise, Eric Cantor, a ma uh, majority leader on the Republican side in the House, was taken down a few years ago by an unknown who, who was regarded as a fringe figure, David Bratt. Uh, and so what you fear in a safe district is you fear challenges within your party. And that's a primary election in most districts, uh, in nearly all districts, in which uh, the people who you have to face are the most loyal members of your own party, and you never have to face voters of the other party. Uh, you never have to be concerned about them. So by most loyal, do we mean most extreme? Or what is lo most loyal in this context? Uh, I, I meant it just in a literal sense, most likely to turn out in the election, uh, in the primary election. So what I meant was people who are in most states, there are exceptions, and the exceptions are super interesting. Uh, in most states, it's people who are registered to the party, because primaries are often closed to independents and members of the opposing party. It's people who are the most likely to vote in the primary. Um, often, but not always, that's going to include um, people who are more ideologically oriented than the general population. Um, it's not necessarily the case that that they are, um, let's see, I have to be careful here. The way I'd put it is that uh, they are the ones who are the highest information, the most attentive to politics, and the most willing to go out and vote. So, uh, so those are, and those are primary voters. And so these primary voters then, if, um, they're most, you're describing them as most committed. I'm trying to get a sense of whether you also think that they are furthest out on the spectrum for their party, or not necessarily furthest, but you know, to the extent that they're engaged, they're more conservative on the Republican Party, more liberal or progressive on the Democratic Party than the median Democrat or median Republican. Well, um, I'm hedging because I think it depends on the district. I'll give you an example. If you look at... Um, the vote to certify the electoral votes in uh, on in January yeah. in the most re recent presidential election. If you look in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, um, and I believe in Ohio, Republicans fissured the ones who are in pretty safe districts, like let's say the districts that are fifty-five to sixty-five percent Republican. Those members of Congress tended to vote to certify the um, the electoral votes. If you look at representatives who are in districts that were more extreme, say 65% or more Republicans, so like really deep red districts, that those districts were more likely to vote to uh, overturn the electoral votes and to to basically disrupt the the conduct of the presidential election. So um, so it's going to depend on the district a bit. Um, uh, I I. Uh, it appears to be the case that when there are lots of Republicans in a district, they uh, there is more of a tendency to for you know, obviously, to state the obvious, more of the district is willing to do something like that, which is a pretty extreme move, in my view. Um, and th the representatives recognize that they are not in any particular danger if they if they take that point of view. So um, I don't. I think the political science evidence is that they're not ne necessarily more partisan than the general population of members of their party who don't vote, but they're just the only. They're the ones. Uh, they only have to worry about members of their own party, and I uh, yeah. and so I'm I'm backing off a little bit from them being particularly different, but it I will say that it is true that primary voters are they're high information, they're likely to turn out, and to to back up to a broader point, um, they're the pivotal voters, and so now if you're an incumbent in a deep red or deep blue district, the pivotal voter who you have to please is different from the median voter in the district, 
And so we have a situation where the pivot point is pretty far from the middle of the district. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine many of those who voted on January 6th to uh, not to certify the results of the Electoral College vote, which, as people in this listening to this podcast know, I believe had absolutely no basis in law. This was not even, there was just not a question to it. There was just no plausible ground on which not to vote to certify those results. But the people who did it did it because they were terrified of a primary challenge by a Trump. Uh, Republican, right? So that is much more plausible, plausibly something they should fear in a really strongly Republican district, right? Yeah. And they, you know, to um, one interesting feature, I would say, of um, what scholars have called elite polarization is that this voter anger has successfully been translated under current voting rules into uh, elite polarization, where voters feel this way. Lots of voters in these deep red districts um, felt strongly about this and didn't care about the law. Uh, and so these people are, um, well, it's the House of Representatives and they're being representative of their constituents. Now, I, I'm under the impression that the founders didn't really quite mean it for the House to be that representative. Uh, but anyway, that's how representative they are. And, uh, and, and they've been, um, in recent months and years, pretty reflective of their constituents in a very direct manner. Okay, so one point, the first, the point we've been focusing on so far is that to the extent you have a House of Representatives that has been gerrymandered to uh, have maximal number of safe seats, and those safe seats are occupied by the most engaged voter from each party, whether they happen to be at the partisan extreme or not, the most engaged voter, that means you've got a House that is constant, you know, members are constantly looking over their shoulder for a threat from an even more extreme member of their own party. So they're sensitive not to the median, right? They're sensitive to the extremes, which seems counterintuitive in a representative democracy where we want the representative to worry about their constituents, not just the fraction of their constituents who might um, be more extreme and challenge them in a primary election. That's right. Yeah, just uh, the this. And, and these things, I would say, didn't matter as much before when there were incentives and um, when there were incentives for members to work across the aisle from one another. And you could imagine uh, members of either party being interested in voting rights or civil rights or, or other rights or other social policies. Uh, but when that incentive is gone, then it creates a situation in which the polarization collides with uh, these mechanisms. And then you end up with this crisis that's been uh, building over the last 20 years or so. Right. Um, okay, now let's go back to the first point you were making about the significance of the ability to draw these districts and the and the variance that it can produce within particular states. And we've seen the dramatic examples of this in Pennsylvania, North Carolina. People argue about whether Maryland is really gerrymandered or not. But, but the point is, um, uh, this is a hugely uh, important decision from, from the perspective of um, whether uh, whether the majority in a state is actually represented as the majority in the House of Representatives, um, you refer in your the writing on on um, the Princeton gerrymandering uh, projects site. Um, you refer to the great gerrymander of 2012, which um, some people on this podcast have heard um, me talk to Dave Daly about that a little bit. But but let's let's put the historical context out there first before we turn to what we fear might be the great gerrymander of 2022. Well, 
2012 was a pretty unusual year for um, redistricting because there was a wave election in 2010 uh, in which um, Republicans were newly catapulted to power in state houses around the country. Uh, and I would characterize the, um, the situation in 2010 as one in which there was, um, as they say in the police procedurals, there was means, motive, and opportunity. And so the means is technology to draw aggressive lines. The motive, which is this uh, polarization that we've been talking about for the last few minutes. And then this wave election in 2010, in which there was the opportunity to draw lots and lots of gerrymanders. You mentioned Maryland. Uh, Democrats were in control there. That was, uh, I would say, if one wants to be aggressive about these things, that was a bright spot for them. Uh, the tendency of Democrats is to draw single districts that are safe for individual incumbents, uh, and I think that's partly, um, honestly, I think that's partly because of the coalitional nature of the Democrats where they they want to draw single districts that are safe for their incumbents. In the meantime, Republicans had lots of opportunities in 2010 to draw uh, gerrymanders. And the tendency of Republicans, at least in 2000 and again in 2010, was to draw, let's call them representational gerrymanders, partisan gerrymanders where they maximize the number of members of their own team. And that requires more artistry. So it requires more, it's a little bit more technological because you have to be able to uh, not only draw a safe district, but draw it to just the right level of safety. You have to draw your own districts to be pretty safe, 55-45, and you take your opponents and stuff them into districts where they're uh, super safe, 75-25. And so those super safe districts, your opponents are now packed into a few districts and that's how you get a larger team, at least in terms of uh, elected legislators. And in 2012, uh, it happened over and over again. It happened in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, um, Ohio. Um, it, it happened in many, many states. And that led to a pretty significant representational distortion. Um, and it's, you know, really the largest distortion in modern times. Um, it's only been about 60 years that we've required congressional districts to be of equal population uh, as per Supreme Court decisions. Um, and in that whole era, uh, I would say that 2012 was really the biggest distortion uh, in the entire period. Okay, so I don't want to quiz you, but um, can you give us a sense of the, the, the kind of distortions we saw? Well, let's see. Um, Pennsylvania is a quintessentially purple state, votes 50-50. Uh, you might expect it to be, say, nine Democrats, nine Republicans, Maybe because of the way Democrats are packed into the cities, you might expect, say, 10 Republicans, uh, 8 Democrats. What actually happened was 13-5, where the delegation was 13 Republicans, 5 Democrats. Uh, similarly, in North Carolina, uh, that's a state with um, 13 members of Congress. Uh, and there, again, it's a 50-50 state, but the delegation was not 7-6. It was 9-4, and then in the next election, 10-3. And so it's another case in which um, in that case, let's say about three seats were picked up by the people in charge. So it's really in purple states that, that the gains are greatest because it's in purple states that things could go either way, right? Because it's about equally divided and like, and you gain the most. Uh, one reason it's hard to judge a gerrymander in Maryland is that Maryland's a pretty reliably democratic state. And so it's just, there's just less to gain when you're in a strongly partisan state. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, all of that happened, though, in a context where the Supreme Court was not yet clear about whether there was such a thing as an unconstitutional political gerrymander, right? Now, that 
question has been answered in the interim. The Supreme Court in the Rucho case has said that the Supreme Court's just not going to have anything to do with judging the constitutionality of a gerrymander. So as we come into 2022, the technology is better. The motive is as strong, maybe stronger. Um, the potential constraint um, of the court is gone. Uh, so what might we expect coming out of this next uh uh, and let's also make sure we're clear, the Republicans have gained um, uh, control over a significant number of state legislatures. So what do we expect might come out of this 2022 gerrymandering? Well, let me preface this by saying that my wife accuses me of being an optimist. Um, and uh, and so I'm going to say I'm optimistic that it won't be as bad as last time because it was just so darn bad last time. And the reason for that is that the, there's two reasons. One is um, the opportunities are fewer. And so since that time, there's been a lot of voter anger. There's been a lot of um, response uh, on, the, on the voter side. Uh, and so uh, it's less possible to do in Ohio because Ohio now has constitutional provisions in the state constitution against gerrymandering. Uh, Michigan and Virginia now have indep uh, independent or quasi-independent commissions that take the power out of the legislators' hands. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania have split party government where the governor is a Democrat in both cases and the legislatures are controlled by Republicans in part because of gerrymandering, um, in large part because of gerrymandering. And so the opportunities are fewer than before. Um, and I'm going to say there's a silver lining in the Rucho decision, in the Supreme Court decision, and that's that um, if you look at the decision, Chief Justice Roberts spent a lot of ink saying bad things about gerrymandering and even kind of, I don't know, like maybe I'm just reading tea leaves, but kind of spending a, more time than necessary talking about how bad partisan gerrymandering is, but then turfing it off to the states. And the optimist in me says, oh, good, we don't have to waste time trying to please Justice Kennedy or Kavanaugh or what have you. We are done with the federal route. And the reason that's important is that lawsuits can take forever to play out. And so people who commit this offense can make it through most of a decade and harvest the benefits of the gerrymander. And we don't have to worry about what's on Justice Kennedy's mind anymore. We can just go straight for the state-by-state -state remedy. And so because of changes in state laws, because of a couple of states where state courts might be sympathetic, uh, and because, frankly, citizens are more engaged in this topic than before, um, I think the offense is going to be less bad than it was 10 years ago. I'm actually pretty confident that it's going to be less bad than 10 years ago. Okay, but then what's the what's the net net? I mean, the New York Times in an article surveying experts said that simply from redrawing districts, the majority that the House, the Democrats have in the House could be flipped. You in your own article about this um, um, said um, there's a serious chance that the majority will flip in 2022, attributing it to the gerrymandering. Do you think that through the gerrymandering alone, we could see the districts drawn in a way that achieves minority-majority status, meaning Republicans have less votes than Democrats, but Republicans nonetheless have more seats in the House? Well, I admit that you have burst my bubble. Um, <laughs> so I would say yes to that. Um, remember that control of the House is really very closely determined right now. I believe that the Democratic majority only has a six-seat margin over the Republicans at the moment. So they really have not very, or a 12-vote margin. I believe a flip of six seats is enough to, uh, to change control. And so the things that are changing right now are there's reapportionment. We just had a census. 
Sunbelt states are going to pick up seats. Uh, Northern and Eastern states uh, will uh, lose seats. And net, that's going to lead to Democrats losing a few seats. Um, It's hard to say exactly how many, but I'd say that's going to be a net loss of about three seats for Democrats. Um, And then uh, you're right. There are are a few states where offenses can be committed. I would say the states that I'm watching the most closely are, um, again, North Carolina, uh, because the governor has no say in redistricting there, Um, Florida, Texas, maybe Georgia. So these are states where uh, where there's uh, still a risk of uh, an offense, uh, a partisan offense. And so it's easy to imagine a handful of seats being picked up at least for a few years until courts can step in. And so, yeah, there's a substantial risk that um, that, that by itself will be enough to, uh, to cause change in control of Congress. And so I would say, um, firstly, there's an awful lot of work to do to, to try to mitigate that harm uh, before it happens. Uh, sorry, prevent the harm, I guess. Um, and, uh, and secondly, um, if anyone's a close watcher of policy, I would say, I would think Democrats are in the, about one, I don't know, call it one-fifth of the way into a two-year window of, uh, of having relative control over the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Um, and nobody should be planning on that continuing after 2022. Yeah, so let's talk about federal policy. Um, I mean, you said we now don't have to worry about Justice Kennedy's thinking anymore. Uh, it's clear the court is not going to do anything, so therefore we can think about the states. But in addition to the states, obviously one thing on the table, one really important thing on the table is H.R. 1, which um, which has an enormously important, I think, and that's my question to you, effort at eliminating gerrymandering. Obviously, they can only do it for Congress because it's under Congress's Article One, Section 4 power, but at least for congressional districts, eliminating uh, or trying to eliminate the partisan gerrymander. So to the extent you 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 feel confident about that, what what do you think about the H.R. 1 uh, opportunity and how important do you think it would be to avoiding um, a repeat of 2012? In this regard, H.R. 1's provisions are absolutely essential. The way I'd put it is that um, I think that we we get passionate, and I think rightly so, about the individual right to vote, whether it be mail-in voting, uh, voter ID, and other forms of uh, ways of manipulating the ability of individuals to vote. But as I said before, redistricting is this later point in the pipeline where even if everybody registered to vote, their votes could be largely rendered powerless by aggressive redistricting. And so so one really nice thing about H.R. 1 is it's got a whole title in it, or a subtitle rather, that is specifically about congressional redistricting. And it does a few things. It sets up um, commissions that, uh, which it, as you say, is, are under Congress's power to establish. It sets up commissions to, um, to oversee congressional redistricting. Uh, it sets up um, rules, so not only processes, but also sets up rules to say that uh, states have to follow uniform rules to not favor or disfavor one political party or another, uh, to protect the political effectiveness of communities of color, to, uh, to, uh, to elect representatives of their choice, uh, and to keep towns, neighborhoods, and other areas um, together where possible. So it, has, it puts in standards and it puts in processes. And taken together, this can really, um, if it makes it into law this year, which is, of course, on the minds of a lot of people who watch civil rights and voting rights, if it makes it into law, this can, at a stroke, put a heavy, heavy dent in congressional gerrymandering. 
Yeah, and so let's let's just emphasize what that means. I mean, one of the features, or you could say bugs, of our whole system of representative democracy is that we are precariously majoritarian in the sense that it doesn't really necessarily translate uh, between getting the most votes and getting the most power. That's true, obviously, in the Senate. Um, it's true in uh, the House because of gerrymandering. It's true in the presidency because of the way the Electoral College works. Um, and to the extent that we imagine 2022 to be an election that follows both the efforts to gerrymander and the vote suppression bills that are passing, you know, being considered and passed through the states, there's a real opportunity that in the House, at least, um, there would be an entrenched minoritarian government in the sense that we can clearly see that the Democrats get more votes, but we don't get more seats because the institutions of elections have been structured to mean the winner isn't the person who gets the most votes. And, and once we start down that path, in a world where the Supreme Court has kind of thrown up its hands and says, it's not our job to police here, it's hard to see how the ordinary democratic process works out. If the winner isn't actually the majoritarian winner in our system, how long before we become Iraq or, you know, Rwanda or whatever, pick your minoritarian favorite. Um, and, and so I, to that extent, when you say this is absolutely critical, I think everybody needs to wake up to the fact that if we don't pass this now, there's an extraordinarily important risk we face that uh, we will veer down this path of minoritarianism and um, obviously weaken the capacity of America to feel like an effective democracy. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that um, there's this circumstance where we've got this um, terrible polarization. We've also got this um, um, divide between rural and urban um, communities in America where one party currently um, it's like a golf handicap or it's like, uh, it's, it's like a, a spread when you're wagering on something. Not that I'm accusing you of wagering on anything. But, um, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's, it's like a two to four point spread where, you can, uh, where one party can lose the popular vote by two points to four points, still have a decent shot, shot of gaining the presidency, uh, can lose the national vote for Senate seats by, again, two to four points. And gerrymandering can take that kind of geographical advantage and blow it up to more like a seven or eight point advantage. And that's a pretty large advantage. And so that's how big the advantage was in 2012. Um, and yeah, one can imagine that, that this is a significant problem. Uh, I would say that um, the, the answer at some level is um, both HR1 uh, and also I think local governance where we have to start um, thinking in terms of um, how people can affect their governance, governments locally in each of these states, in Ohio, in Florida, in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, and uh, whether that be um, uh, through state legislatures, through state courts. Uh, I would say that people should think of, uh, I, uh, this is going to maybe bend people's minds a little bit, but, but the phrase states' rights um, might need to get turned on its head where it, states' rights used to be invoked to hold back civil rights. But maybe one should think about federalism as also being helpful in providing a second layer of addressing these problems. But back to your point, um, yeah, this is a critical moment in our democracy where I think um, addressing these problems actively is really essential in maintaining any way for, for the majority to have its say. I mean, we're not talking about like letting the minority have its say. We're now kind of in a regime where the majority has no clear route to having a say, which is kind of a weird situation to be in. 
Yeah. I mean, you think about the fact that if the Senate filibuster rules are not changed, the only way the majority can assure that the majority has a say is if a supermajority can stand up and say, yes, the majority ought to have a say. But if you can't get a supermajority on the side of majoritarianism, then we're going to have minoritarianism. Then we're going to have a system where the minority has this extraordinary advantage because of these accidents of, yeah, of our tradition. Kind of a combination of minoritarianism and also um, paralysis, right? Like you mentioned the filibuster. Yeah. And the filibuster creates this funny um, legislative zone of death where within a certain range of voting, nobody can get anything done. And so we have all these veto points in our democracy where the House can modify the Senate, the president can veto a bill. The Senate has this unique property of setting up, currently having a rule where it can veto itself. And there's just a zone of public opinion um, where, where under current polarized conditions, nothing can survive. Yeah. I mean, what's astonishing about that, we could have a whole episode, maybe we will someday, about the filibuster. But what's astonishing about that is, of course, the filibuster was an accident. It wasn't intended. It was an accident of the ways the Senate rules got amended. And the original history, um, you know, of course, deployed in all sorts of terrible ways, but the original use of the filibuster actually required hard work. You know, Strom Thurmond actually had to stand in 1957 on the floor of the Senate and speak for more than 24 hours to stop the Civil Rights Bill of 1957 from proceeding. And when he got too tired, then it proceeded. But today, the way the rules are crafted, nobody has to stand on the floor and say anything. Nobody has any obligation unless they want to grandstand like Ted Cruz did uh, when he shut down the government in 2013. Um, Instead, you just have the signal to the leader that you intend Um, uh, a filibuster. And that's it. The game's up until you can gather the votes, 60 votes to to bring the bring the motion forward. So, you know, when we see this debate out there about whether we should keep the filibuster, we should be clear what we're talking about is not black and white. You can talk about the right of somebody to stand on the floor of the Senate and continue to debate for as long as he or she wants. Okay, I think it's unnecessary, but maybe that's a good thing. But the idea that all you need to do is to send an email or a text to the majority leader that says, stop this bill that 75% of America supports, and that's it. It doesn't proceed. That's astonishing, especially in an institution like the Senate, which is already wildly non-majoritarian. I mean, you know, the representational gap. I did this calculation recently where if you looked in 1790, obviously the year the Constitution first goes into effect, States representing 26% of the population had the ability to block legislation, but by just a majority. And when you look to 2010, that number is was then 18% of the population. States representing 18% of the population would have the ability to block a majority. But when you include the gerrymander or the uh, filibuster, in 2010, states representing 12% of America have the capacity to block Senate from passing uh, legislation. And the idea that any system that would have that kind of block, not for serious constitutional reform, but for ordinary legislation, is either a vitocracy in um, Francis Fukuyama's uh, sense or just one that is destined to fail. Well, I think the founders uh, had idealistic views that um, debate in the Senate would be conducted under conditions of actual debate and exchange yes. of views. And and they had this uh, view that factions would not arise, or at least they set up rules that didn't really quite allow for 
the power of a determined faction to gum up the works. And so here we are stuck, you know, with these rules where uh, uh, the founders, I don't know, how many founders, how many people were there in the colonies at that time? I guess there were about 3 million people. So it was a country that whose population was about the size of Brooklyn. And, and imagine, okay, white male landowners. And so a community the size of Brooklyn spread out over the East Coast um, or the coast as it were at the time. Uh, and then only the landowners. And so imagine only the shopkeepers of Brooklyn uh, were setting the rules. And I don't know if the shopkeepers all know each other then, and they don't have political parties yet, then of course you can resolve things by discussion. And so they had their rules. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. It seems, they seem like reasonable rules for the time. But here we are with national media communication, partisan lines drawn up, ethnic diversity where people of color can vote, uh, and we've got increasing diversity in the country. And so there's all kinds of pressures that, that, that create new pressure to find a way to govern that goes beyond anything they imagined. So that seems kind of tough. Yeah, especially because the one thing they imagined would not happen is the most salient thing that has happened, which is partisan identity becoming the identity of individuals. I mean, the idea of this fractioned, uh, fractionated, two-polarized party system was anathema. And of course, as people like Lee Drutman and others have, have, have you know, Lee Drutman's book, uh, Doomloop, but others have evinced this point um, powerfully. Though we look back on our history and imagine we've only ever had two parties, and sometimes we've had three, but essentially only two. We've never really had just two parties. Those two parties were themselves ideologically divided. So there's always been a shadow four-party system. And in a four-party system, you know, nobody can presume to speak for the majority. So they all have to work together to try to figure out how they're going to get anything done. But in our current system, with this polarized two-party system, we live in a world where um, one side believes it can uh, win and then uh, condemn the other side to Siberia and uh, and do whatever they want. But, you know, that only works for six months or nine months, and then we are stuck in stalemate or stuck in authoritarian presidentialism, which is, of course, the biggest, most dramatic change in the character of our government, perhaps. Well, as a, as a math-oriented scientist, I mean, I, I run a neuroscience lab in my day job and I'm constantly dealing with math and data. And this makes me think of us as... Um, falling on a single dimension of partisanship where everybody's on an axis from far left to near left to moderate to far right to far right. And there we are on a single axis. And that single axis of polarization makes it easy to choose up camps. But um, if we could somehow find a way to get off of that axis by, by fissuring, by, by, not quite fomenting divisions, but by recognizing contrasts in one or both major parties, and then get, that can get back to what you just said, call it a four-party system. I mean, you know, honestly, at some level on the Republican side, I think we're seeing it in the form of um, a wing of the Republican Party, a pretty large wing, uh, yeah. that is willing to overturn constitutional mechanisms to uh, to get a more satisfactory presidential election outcome. And that's a I mean, I'm, yeah. it's not it's not the fissure that I would have liked to see, but it, it is a fissure within the Republican Party, uh, and so it strikes me that that things like that. I think, in some sense, there's a silver lining that it starts to show the possibilities of having more than just two parties. Yeah, I mean, I you know we all Democrats you know, you know desperately want to see the Republicans divide. I think the hard principled question is: Should we also want the Democrats to divide? I mean, because if we really do think 
we do think that we would be better off if, if nobody thought they were a majority and they all had to work hard to, to craft a majority. Wouldn't that be a better, more governable system? How would one divide the Democrats? What would be the way in which they would um, fissure in a way that, that you know, follows cracks that may already be there? Well, I think there is a kind of progressive, non-progressive division. I mean, I say that even though I myself consider myself a progressive and I very much support you know, the Elizabeth Warren um, frame of progressivism. But, um, you know, there are many Democrats who obviously are not. And so there is a division. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not eager to see it happen, given, I think, the progress that's happening right now with this president. But I just wonder for the long-term health of the Congress. You know, you, you've been thinking in two other areas that we're not going to have time to talk about because I want to get to the Electoral College, which is where we first met. But You've been working on ranked choice voting and open primaries. Those are two mechanisms that could facilitate this. You know, it's 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 multiplying the dimensions that are, exist within Congress rather than just having this simple binary, which, as many people have remarked, produces this pathological inability to do anything. Yeah, there are some good benefits of ranked choice voting. Um, defanging these pivotal voters, uh, providing incentives for people to to no longer trash one another, it feels like a solution that's reasonably well-crafted to our current time of polarization and maybe even you know, resolving differences if we end up with multidimensional politics, as it were. So ranked choice voting does seem like, um, seems like a good time to do some more experiments with ranked choice voting under current circumstances. Yeah. Okay, so before we leave um, um, gerrymandering, I'll just point to you've got two projects, um, openprecincts.org and representable.org, which... Are, are giving people, I, I take it, just tools they can use to play around and, and to model what um, fair districts would look like? Is that the objective there? Kind of. Um, I would say there's a two major activities we have going in 2021 here at Princeton um, to try to help with representation. One broad category is um, bringing up standards of fairness. And as you say, it's at Open Precincts where we're archiving and, and setting up an open data um base for, for use by anyone, and also at gerrymander.princeton.edu. And the general idea there is to put the data in the service of citizens who want to uh, know how fair or unfair their current map is, uh, perhaps score a map. And so we're working with other organizations. We're actually having conversations with organizations such as Represent Us about how to turn these things into a, a dashboard that can be used to just um, just like your car dashboard, when you can look at your speedometer and see that you're going too fast, uh, tell you how fair or unfair a map is. And we're hoping to automate that as much as possible and to oh, turn cool. it into a, a score, a dashboard, or even a report card, like really make, make it as simple as possible. So that's one thing we're doing. And then there's this other thing we're doing, uh, which I'm really excited about. It's, it's a student project, and it's um, called representable.org. Uh, and uh, and a bunch of computer science and other students here at Princeton, uh, Kyle, Theo, Sonia, Michaela, uh, Olivia, and others, uh, th they have created a tool to um, help citizens draw their own communities digitally and then create a database of communities that deserve to be represented in a unified manner, upload that into a shared database, and give it to redistrictors, whether it's legislators or commissions, give it to them in a direct machine-readable format to make it as easy as possible for them to respect those communities of interest. Uh, wow. and, that's, um, and that's basically crowdsourcing the question of who's a community. 
And we think that that has the possibility of really supercharging citizen input. Um, and we're, we're, we're rolling it out in a number of states. And I think uh, we're hoping that representable.org is a, is a tool that we hope anybody can use in the coming months uh, because, uh, you know, it's all hands on deck. Okay, great. We will we'll publish these and we'll push them. Um, but let's shift to the the topic that um, is the first, is the topic that draw us together originally, which is the question of the electoral college. Um, so, to the extent we want to identify precariously majoritarian institutions in our democracy, the one that's been most salient in people's minds, obviously, is the electoral college and the way we elect the president. Um, um, so, when you think about where we are right now, as opposed to What's the ideal solution? Um, what do you think the right thing to be doing right now is to avoid um, the kind of problem we saw in 2016 or came very close to seeing in 2020? I suppose are we, I'm tempted to suggest a massive subsidy program to move people to Wyoming. <laughs> a friend of mine suggested this, like to South Dakota too. And uh, I thought it was silly originally, but when you look at the numbers, it's probably much cheaper than anything else that could happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I got to say, the weird thing about politics, as as you well know uh, in your writings and your in your speeches, um, is just how darn expensive politics is, where it costs a billion dollars to run a presidential campaign. And I got to say, I, I don't know, like the, we pour all this money into that, but there may be other things that are pretty cost effective, like pushing redistricting reform, which is something that costs right. like more like millions, or God help us, moving people to Wyoming. So yeah, the Electoral College, I, I don't know, there's different fixes. First, stipulating that the main problem is when presidential elections are within five percentage points in terms of the popular vote, um, historically, there's about a one in three chance that the Electoral College is going to wig out and give the presidency to whoever gets fewer votes. And so, so any election that's closer than five points is a problem. So, um, so what are the solutions? Well, um, but let's let's be clear about something. I mean, you've done the numbers, and you're fearful that in fact that probability is going to uh, be increase over time. Like we're not. This is not like an issue that happened, and we're not going to see it again. The way I would put it is this: for as long as we have close elections that, where the popular vote is within five points, the entire mechanism is intrinsically at risk of giving the presidency to whoever wins fewer votes. And I estimate that risk, uh, we've estimated that risk as about, at about one out of three. And so there's just this built-in, unavoidable failure risk of awarding the presidency essentially at, semi at random in any kind of close election. And that, that under current rules, that is just not going away. Now, there are ways to mitigate it, um, and they are small. Uh, so I would say, you know, honestly, one way to mitigate it would be um, to admit any state with substantial population. Honestly, statehood for Puerto Rico would probably uh, slightly mitigate it. Although, you know, Puerto Ricans don't necessarily have to vote Democratic. They could vote Republican. There, there are yeah. some conservative aspects of Puerto Rico. So I would say admitting Puerto Rico would be kind of a, like, slight mitigation. Um then there's reforms that I, I'm sure you have uh, strong opinions about, uh, things like uh, finding ways to implement a national popular vote. And, uh, and you've had some pretty innovative ideas on that front. Uh, and so a mechanism that allows the popular vote and the electoral vote to reflect each other more closely um, 
you know, things like the National Popular Vote Compact or more complicated ideas. Um, I guess um, decimal allocation of electors, that would be a more, more complicated idea. So that would be another route. Um, I have to say the realist in me says, why don't we wait a few years and wait for things to be a little bit less closely divided and then bring it up again when, when people aren't quite so angry about it? And, and I realize that's sort of a kicking the can down the road. But but these days I've been thinking like that. Yeah, although when you think about, you know, the other legislative changes that are being considered, um, we could call them, for example, the faithless legislature laws, um, which would empower legislatures to overturn the popular vote um, uh, and allocate electors how they see fit. I mean, you know, once again, we have this dynamic where the incentives are going to be to constitution or to entrench a minority government unless we find a way to fix this. Right. The, the, the big fire there that you're referring to, of course, is the idea that federal courts may find a new right that state legislatures have to bypass their existing laws and bypass their governors even. I mean, you know, one could, the, the mind reels, right? Because we thought yes. the big problem was an anti-majoritarian uh, presidential mechanism. And now there's this other monster that's walked into the room, which is yeah. the possibility that legislatures can just wing it. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course, in this last election, many very prominent people on the right were asserting that that was exactly the power of the legislature. And that's, frankly, what I was most fearful of, um, you know, that they would convince Mike Pence to act on these theories and and get him to kind of rule into rule himself and, and Donald Trump into the presidency. And had that happened, I'm not sure it would have been the Proud Boys marching on the Capitol. You know, it would have been a, a quite terrifying if that had, in fact, played out. In that a, a guy on my team, um, a gentleman on my team, Rick Ober, uh, Rick and I have, um, and Aaron Barden and I have looked into the precedents behind such a radical move. And uh, you know, strictly in the domain of redistricting, but more generally, the question of whether the Constitution allows state legislatures to uh, to go independent, to go rogue relative to the governor, and we we hauled up a, a whole pile of precedents, at least in the redistricting dom redistricting domain, showing just how much would be upset if federal courts got interested in this question. Uh, it, it's a really pretty substantial disruption. So I, my hope is that even a conservative uh, conservatively minded, I should say so-called, because it's not really conserving anything, but um, but let's say a Federalist Society-inspired judge, um, would such a person really want to go there? And um, I don't know. I, I feel like that's a pretty radical change. So it, it feels, feels extreme to me. Yeah. So there have been two proposals for majoritarianism. I mean, one, you know, obviously the constitutional amendment to change the way electors are allocated is interesting, but let's just bracket that for a second. The two national popular vote related proposals are one, the national popular vote compact, which obviously um, uh, is, I guess, at, uh, 196 and we'll get Virginia. So we'll get it 200 and something and maybe Maine, but it's not really within striking distance to get to 270 unless we get some major Republican states to come along. The other one I wonder if you've thought about much um, is coming out of work that Reed Hunt has um, supported with a Make Every Vote Count group, which is, the, um, which is the idea of what they call the voter's choice ballot. And so the voter's choice ballot, it says to voters, it's kind of like ranked choice voting, but across the dimension of national popular vote. So 
it says like, who's your first choice? And so you vote, you know, Biden or you vote Trump. And then the next question is, if your first choice is not the winner of the national popular vote, would you like your choice to be the winner of the national popular vote? And so, you know, it doesn't actually require a majority in the state to vote that way. You know, it could be a small percentage, let's say 5% who say, yeah, I want Donald Trump, but what I really want is the person who's going to represent the nation. So I'll say if Joe Biden's the winner of the national popular vote, I want Joe Biden to win. And so if that happens and, you know, 5% go that way, that could be enough to take a swing state and swing it in favor of the majoritarian um, the the winner of the national popular vote. I, I wonder whether you've thought about that dynamic, given... If it passes constitutional muster, which is your department, not mine, um, it's it has the effect of assigning a state's electors to the winner of the national popular vote. And so, therefore, it's like a unilateral version of the national popular vote compact. So it removes the yeah. problem that it's it's no longer an agreement between states. So that's good. So that's uh, an issue that it removes. Um, it creates a slight issue that you still have to have a way of determining the national popular vote, and there's no yes. clear there's no clear mechanism of that. So you need to have a way of doing that. Um, but you know, possible if we can, I don't know if we can uh, if we can calculate the uh, the market capitalization of Apple Incorporated. Surely we can calculate <laughs> the national popular vote. I mean, gosh, it seems like it should be doable. Um, so someone should be able to do that. Um, I think it's clever. And, um, and I guess the question is, could one get it to fly in a swing state? Because all of these things, national popular vote compact, uh, and likewise this, uh, voters choice, uh, initiative, the way that they have their effects are in, well, actually, no, not, wait a minute. Um, I take it back. The national popular vote compact requires, a purple state to go along. But actually, this has the advantage, like imagine, I'll just give you an example. Imagine if Texas or California went along with it, right? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm not super convinced that they would, but um, but if they did, then that would be a game changer. I mean, I'll give you an example. This is just a hypothetical, just to stir the imagination. Imagine if California and Texas made this deal and nobody else did, right? That would be enough to get rid of I think all but one of the cases in which the popular vote uh, that the Electoral College, as it were, messed up uh, in the history that California and Texas have been states, that one agreement would be enough to have solved, uh, I believe, uh, nearly all the popular vote, electoral vote inversions. And so it wouldn't Wait, take... So let's be clear about this. So you're saying that if California and Texas struck a deal where they said, we promise to go with the national popular vote. If you promise to go with the national popular vote, that's it. There's no more problem. I think that's all. I think it's weird because it's a strange hypothetical, but that would be enough to solve the popular vote, electoral vote problem. Um, Now, I don't think California and Texas would really, I'm just imagining Governor Newsom and Governor Abbott um, having a summit meeting and agreeing to that. It's not immediately firing my imagination. Um, but that would be enough, and so the, I'm just. This is just to put your your hypothetical, or really not so hypothetical. This voters' choice initiative could hypothetically could potentially have a lot of power uh, if it were passed in the right states. Uh, and I guess one thing I'm curious about there is um, how successful will they be in getting it onto the ballot? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a hard question. Um, 
but you know, with your hypothetical, if Matthew McConaughey is the governor of Texas, who knows what could what could happen in a deal with California? Um, but I, but the thing I fear about all of this is it just feels too clever by half. You know, in the sense that imagine there were an election where it looked like under the traditional rules uh, the Republican was supposed to win. But under these rules, the either the voters' choice rules or the National Popular Vote Compact, um, the Democrat would win. It seems like there would be an initial moment of kind of questioning the integrity of the process or you know, whether this is really the person we should consider the winner in a way that I think no president would ever want to have to confront. I mean, you know, obviously... George Bush and Donald Trump weren't troubled by the fact that they were not the majority winners in the popular vote. But at least they could say, look, this is the system and the system means we're president. But when you've got these clever hacks to the system, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm for it. I want to do whatever we can to get the majoritarian precedent. But I'm, I'm a little worried that, um, that uh, you know, it's not stable, especially, you know, imagine it, National Comp Popular Vote Compact happened. And and uh, a, a Republican won, and California was the reason why they got the electoral votes. You know, I can imagine California very quickly would want to say, enough of this. Let's stop playing this game. Made uniform or nearly uniform by Thomas Jefferson, where he basically wanted to stick it to, um, I guess yeah. he wanted to stick it to John Adams. And and so he, he wanted to make sure there there weren't any, you know, what we would now call faithless electors. And so he said, we should all have winner take all. And so it's so ingrained in us that I think you're right. I think there one could risk things like street violence and significant unrest. I mean, look how bad it was this time around. And the election was somewhat close, but not, but not necessarily super close. <laughs> yeah, there was no doubt who should have who would have been declared winner. And still, we had the marching in the Capitol. Yeah, maybe, maybe it would be better. Like, and this rewinds to what I was saying, which is that maybe what we need is to just get out of this tunnel we're in right now and shore up democracy, patch it up address things that are obviously wrong, such as gerrymandering, um, find ways to to clean up aspects of the system that are without, you know, seeming like we're committing some, you know, yeah. some clever trick, and then revisit this question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to say that that maybe one might, what, what might, might want to do is, is to stay cool and come back to the question in five, 10 years. Yeah, well, I mean, passing HR1 would address a whole bunch of really critical problems, including changing the way campaigns are funded, which, of course, for me has been the passion for many years. It doesn't do anything about the Electoral College, so maybe that's the strategy. Let's get HR1 passed, and let's get a majoritarian democracy working in at least the congressional branch, and then we'll come back to dealing with the presidential problem. Yeah, I think uh, I would say um, put out the part of the building that's on fire yes. where the hose is closest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Sam, thank you so much for this. This has been really great. And um, thank you again for your work, uh, which has been incredibly important. Um, you know, you're a Renaissance man at a time when we need this kind of capacity. And I, I know what it's like to hold a full-time job as a professor while also playing the role as a reformer. So um, I, I have enormous respect for what you've done. Well, I thank you for your work. And uh, I don't know, for everything I've learned from you, both in person and also remotely through your writings and statements. I, uh, it's a pleasure to spend time with you. Great. Thank you.
That's our episode. Sam Wang is an extraordinary figure. You should follow him at the Princeton Election Consortium and the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. And um, and also his work in neuroscience, which is very uh, important, especially for people worrying about how brains develop, namely parents. And uh, he's got two books that are, um, I haven't read both books, I've read one book. Um, so one book, really great book about how to think about the development of the brain. Um, and his work at the center, which we will link the two um, .org projects that he describes in this uh, podcast on the website, um, can begin to bring people into the project of understanding the challenge that gerrymandering presents, and most importantly, understanding why it is so critical. Um, you know, we fight so hard to make sure that there are absentee ballots or mail-in ballots or to make sure that everybody who shows up at a poll can can vote, and those are critically important. But the magnitude of the effect from gerrymandering compared to those effects is just un. Uh, believable, like you would not understand it until you did the numbers, and obviously that's what he has spent so much time doing. These podcasts are produced by EqualCitizens.us. You can find us on the web at EqualCitizens.us slash another way. Please go to that page and give us feedback and ideas uh, and places and questions we should be going and questions that we should be asking. Um, I'm committed that throughout the arc of the consideration of HR1, we're going to continue to follow its progress. And though most are uh, speaking skeptically about the chance to get through the Senate, I think this skepticism is wildly overblown. The the gerrymander, yeah, it is a gerrymander. The filibuster is, of course, not surmountable for HR1. But the filibuster is, it turns out, much more flexible in the arc of that rule. And I think we need to rally people to the cause of making it possible for democracy reform to pass the filibuster notwithstanding, rather than folding and giving up and talking about the small changes, the tiny changes, the small board changes that would get us nothing. So you're going to hear me rant more about that. I just read a piece today that's driving me nuts on this question, but you're going to hear me rant about it later. That's not for today. Today, this podcast is over, and we will pick up next week with another episode of Another Way. Thanks for listening. This is Larry Lessig. Mm-hmm.